The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Richard Louvre. He is the author of eight books, including Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, and The Nature Principle. That book has been translated into 15 languages and published in 20 countries. His books have helped launch an international movement to connect children and their families to nature. And I am going to focus on Last Child in the Woods, which is one of my favorite references, and talk about the latest book, Vitamin N, 500 Ways to Enrich Your Family's Health and Happiness. This book is just hot off the press this April. Richard Louvre is also co-founder and chairman emeritus of the Children and Nature Network, an organization supporting the international movement to connect children, their families, and their communities to the natural world. Welcome, Mr. Louvre. Thank you, Melinda. Well, I remember hearing you speak for the very first time at the American Horticultural Society. There was a conference in St. Louis, and they were talking about the importance of connecting children to nature and getting them involved in growing things. And, of course, I want children to grow more of their food and get their hands in the soil more. And then I also realized that nature, through you, was so important in treating children's behavioral, quote-unquote, disorders the ADHD record are off the charts. We're seeing such an increase in children's behavioral disorders, and yet when we look back and see how much time they're spending in nature, it's decreasing. So I wanted to have you tell your story. You are a journalist by training. How did you get into the subject of nature? Well, two ways in terms of the connection between children and therefore adults because children do tend to grow up. How I got into that is I actually was a kid once, and I spent a lot of my boyhood in the woods behind our house with my collie. I had a real sense then that I would not have been able to explain then. Just a kind of instinct that this was extraordinarily important to me, this time in nature, that I was finding something bigger there. But only later did I realize that that it might be good for other people too. So, And that happened in the late 19. 80s in a very focused way when I was researching another book called Childhood's Future. And that was about the changing realities of family life. And I interviewed about 3,000 parents and kids and some teachers and tried to stay away from experts. And I came back with several thousand pages of transcripts. And I looked for the repeating themes of what people would tell me in classrooms and living rooms and around kitchen tables. And those became the chapters. One of the things that parents brought up and even kids brought up was that something profound was changing in the relationship between children and nature. And the parents didn't have any language to describe that. It was just a sense. Why is it that their kids resisted going outdoors? Outdoors, period, let alone outdoors into nature. And they were feeling that then. And so for the next decade, I kept track of the research that was finally coming out on this, that, the, that what I reported in, in that earlier book was anecdotal evidence, but suddenly the 
the, the world of people who study human behavior, uh, child behavior, in uh, child uh, development in particular, finally began to pay attention to this issue of how the natural world affects the construction of brain architecture in young children, for example. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, I always wanted to write a book on this, but at that point, there was a real book to write, not only the anecdotal evidence, but this science that was starting to come in. Mm-hmm. What I've witnessed as a parent, and my children are grown now, but I remember one of the punishments in school was if a child was misbehaving, they wouldn't get to go out to play. And I thought that was such a tragedy. How could somebody get an education degree and not recognize the importance of children having this physical release outside in terms of helping their behavior indoors? And it's gotten worse. I just returned from giving a speech in New Mexico, and I learned there that the schools there, the the, uh, the state, will withhold funds from any school that that uh, drops before uh, below a certain level of uh, test scores, standardized test scores. Uh, what I learned is that it's not just that; it's not just the, they actually take recess away from these schools if the kids fall below a certain level of standardized testing. Now, anybody who's looked at the actual science of this uh, knows that that's insane, that we've known for decades that recess actually raises test scores. Mm -hmm. And yet, what are we doing? We're putting them in schools longer and longer hours, taking recess away, you know, making them sit still in chairs, take tests all day, and then we feed them pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some kids need medication, but what proportion of that huge increase in the number of kids that are being diagnosed with attention deficit disorder might have something to do with the fact that we took nature away from them in the first place and took recess away from them in the first place. And add to that, too many hours of homework so that when they do come home from school and there might be an hour before dark or two to be outside playing, those short time periods that children could have an opportunity to engage with their outdoor world, that's taken from them too. Yeah. There are a lot of reasons for, you know, what in The Nature Principle and then the subsequent book, which was um, about adults, which is uh, The Nature uh, – Last Child in the Woods was about kids, and Nature Principle is about uh, adults with nature deficit disorder. Yeah. And the third book that's just out now is Vitamin M, and that's uh, a, a collection of 500 ways that people can increase the quality of their lives, their communities – and really create a nature-rich life. Despite the bad news out there, and there's a considerable amount of it, there's a lot good that's happening. This uh, uh, movement uh, that has emerged in the last decade uh, to connect kids to nature and therefore adults to nature mm-hmm. is growing quickly. It's a real counter trend to so many of the the other trends, like taking away recess, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, you coined the term nature deficit disorder. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, it's not a a known medical diagnosis, perhaps it should be, but it's really a way to talk about this thing that's been happening that many of us have known was happening for some time, or we've sensed it was. I actually, uh, in 2010, I was asked to give a keynote plenary address to the American Academy of Pediatrics, their uh, annual meeting, a national meeting, and there are several thousand pediatricians in in the room. I was pretty nervous about this because this is an important group. If there's one group that parents trust, it's pediatricians. Right. And so their support of this idea is crucial. 
And what I said to them is, look, I'm not going to, here's what I'm not going to ask you to do. I'm not going to ask you to have an official American Academy of Pediatrics policy on nature deficit disorder. I know that that is a metaphor, not a diagnosis. And I know that you're going to ask me where the 30-year longitudinal studies are, to which I would say to you, pediatricians, where were you 30 years ago when you should have started those studies? They don't exist because nobody's asked the question until recently. And they actually like that. The pediatricians understand that. And the response was far better than I would have hoped. What I said I was going to ask them to do is to use their own wisdom to take care of their patients the way they believed was best. And if that included prescribing nature, please do it. The reaction was, as I say, much better than I had even hoped. Today, quite a few pediatricians are beginning to have been for some time prescribing nature. Some of them may actually have a little nature prescription uh, pad. In Washington, D.C., there's a pediatrician, uh, Robert Czar, Dr. Robert Czar, who's organized the pediatricians of D.C. to begin to prescribe nature. And they've gone a step further than that. They've created a database of all the urban parks in in D.C. so that the pediatrician, when he prescribes nature to the family, can actually get on the computer and turn around and say, here's a park near your house. Yeah. So that is happening. So pediatricians really, I think, understand this instinctively, partly because, as one of the members of the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics told me, she gets kids into her office every day that have morbidities that they've never seen in the number that they're seeing now in terms of early childhood depression, Mm. in terms of child obesity, and a long list of things that... And, and the pediatricians feel helpless in some ways in the onslaught of these new morbidities, including other ones like myopia that's now been connected to not going outdoors enough because of sunshine. It's not just the close work that kids do. And so they're eager to find an, another tool, not the only tool, not the panacea, but another tool to try to help these kids and their families, and they see nature as, as nature experience is one of those tools. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you brought up some of the illnesses that pediatricians are seeing. I've been a dietitian for 30 or more years, and the childhood obesity issue has been really the focus of a good part of that career. And certainly getting children outside to play more and growing more of their own food, getting their hands in the soil, seeing the beauty and magic of a seed sprouting is all part of this movement. So at no other time do I think your book is so critically important. And I want to launch into vitamin N now because what I found in my work is that I might make a recommendation to spend more time outside. Or t- I remember when I was making a recommendation to turn the TV off. And I remember a colleague of mine said to me, I don't know what to do when the TV is off. And I thought, wow, this is an educated person. She should remember what to do. So vitamin N gives us, as you say, an essential guide to how to put nature in action, whether you're at home or school, communities. It's perfect. Well, thanks. And I, I hope it is. That's not the, not the normal kind of book that I do because it is a collection of 500 ideas. And we worked real hard on it not to have it be glib and and too easy. Many of the actions in the book are easy to do, but others are more complex and have to do with what you can do to improve your community around you and your neighborhood, Uh, how to create a nature-rich backyard, how to create a nature-rich home, 
how to help your kids and, and their teachers create a nature-rich school and even a nature-rich workplace where actually places that are designed with what is called biophilic architecture, which weaves nature into a workplace. Studies show that the people who work in those workplaces are more productive, sick time goes down, turnover gets over. What if we saw our whole city in that way? What if we had biophilic cities? What if cities could become engines of biodiversity? So as you can see, I do spend most of the book on simple things that families and and teachers and, and kids can do. But as the book progresses toward the end, there there is something much bigger uh, that needs to be done, and that has to be done at a community level. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, of course, turn to the section on how a jalapeno can change a life because it was food-based. But you talk about your friend, Juan Martinez, who grew up in south-central Los Angeles, very poor, how his mother broke up a little piece of concrete behind the family's house to have just a very small garden and the impact that had on his life. What changed his life? And what actually changed it first was his principal gave him a, a choice. Either he could be in detention basically full-time or he could join the eco club at the <laughs> high school. And Juan, who's a friend of mine, thought about that for quite a while and finally decided to join the Eco Club. He didn't want to because that's where the nerds were, he believed. <laughs> and, and Juan, as he tells, was headed for gangs. I mean, he, he was in a tough neighborhood, and he was headed in that direction. And the, the teacher gave them all – their first assignment was to raise something live, raise a plant. And so Juan picked jalapeno plant because he'd seen his, his mother, as you said, you know, pull out the front stoop behind their little house and plant – jalapenos for their chili there and so he raised a jalapeno plant and took it home to his mother and he said the reason he did that is to show his mother that he could give life too and from that point on he the eco club went to the grand tetons It, it literally changed his life he now is a colleague with the children of nature network he's a national leader in connecting young people in particular, to the natural world as leaders in the children and nature movement. He's been to the White House speaking at least twice. I tease him that they're going to have to rent out the Lincoln bedroom to him. <laughs> and he, you know, he's an example of how someone from an inner city who didn't have much nature when he was small, that it's never too late. And nature isn't just something that you have to drive two hours to get to. It's all around us. It's in the densest urban neighborhoods. We can find it and we can grow it. One of the precepts of the Nature Principle, the second book, which leads to vitamin N, and I elaborate on this in vitamin N, is that conservation is no longer enough. Now we need to create nature. As strange as that sounds, we have to begin to uh, increase the biodiversity in our cities. And as of 2008, more people in the whole world live in cities than in the countryside, first time in human history. That means one of two things. Either people, our species, will continue to lose whatever connection it has to the natural world, and therefore I believe our humanity, or it means the beginning of a new kind of city. When Mm -hmm. I talk to young people in colleges in particular, they want to go there. They want to create that future. This is more than sustainability, interpreted often as energy efficiency. This is about creating beauty. This is about creating health, cities that are engines of biodiversity and human health. And we can start in our homes and in our yards. That's vitamin N offers 
hundreds of ways to do that. Yeah. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Richard Louvre. He is the co-founder and chairman emeritus of the Children and Nature Network. He is the author of many books. His ninth book is just hot off the press this month, April, and we are talking about it. It's called Vitamin N, 500 Ways to Enrich Your Family's Health and Happiness. I want to go back to your discussion about cities and how we can make them more sustainable, more nature-friendly. There has been some discussion about whether or not we plant fruit trees, for example, in some cities, because this is a way for children to be well-nourished and then also just enjoy the beauty and flavor of these fruit-producing trees. And yet I hear people complaining, well, you know, we can't have these fruit-producing trees because that will bring bugs, that will bring bees. And I realize when I hear that just how disconnected we are and how we should be celebrating pollinators, not fearing them. Yeah, in California a few years ago, there was a a man and wife who traveled around uh, California, kind of a a Johnny Appleseed couple. And they went from city to city and helped schools plant fruit trees on the school grounds. They got to San Diego and the San Diego School District, and this is where I live, said no because the students would use the fruit as weapons. Oh. So they didn't get to do it here. I mean, when you look at the actual science on this, natural school grounds, which include school gardens on the school grounds, includes native species, can include fruit trees and so forth. Schools that have natural play spaces, the kids are far more likely to invent their own games. That has everything to do with creativity and executive function, which is a psychological concept for kids being able to control themselves, be their own boss. People who, kids who play on natural play spaces and in community gardens and so forth, school gardens, also tend to be more inclusive of their play. They'll bring in kids of the other gender. They'll bring in kids that don't look like them into the play, much more likely than they will on a flat asphalt uh, playground. Hmm. So there are so many benefits. It actually builds social capital. And in vitamin N, as I did in in uh, the nature principle, I call that human nature social capital. Why is it when we talk about social capital, we only talk about one species, our own? The animals and the plants that live in our cities, in our backyard, around us, they're a part of what makes us human. They're part of our social capital. Uh, and we need to begin to think about that in order to enrich our lives, in order to enrich our cities. Mm-hmm. I think there's a great opportunity to expand children's awareness of the outdoors. And I remember one of the things that you said in St. Louis that has stuck with me for all of these years was you were describing how important it is for children to fall in love, say, with the spotted owl. Because if they don't fall in love with these creatures, who will protect them when we're gone? And in Vitamin N, you talk about helping kids be science scouts. So we're talking about this role of the citizen scientist, where we're observing the quality of our environment so that we can help protect it. There's a poem I read recently. It has a wonderful line in it. It's from Robinson Jeffries, which is, I have fallen in love outward. And that idea, that phrase of falling in love outward is an interesting phrase to me. When we begin to love species other than our own, this deepens our life, deepens our experience, helps us feel more alive. And so I think that one of the things we have to move toward is 
in our schools and in our families to teach ourselves and teach kids how to fall in love outward, not only our own species, but all the species around us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to talk about a challenge that we face. I'm really glad that I'm not raising young children right now because it is a different environment. And one of the challenges I see around me is this constancy of having our heads in a screen. So when my children were young, it was the television that was the the evil that I had to limit and say, no, we need to go outside and play. Let's go take a hike. But you recently wrote a piece It's the seven reasons for the new nature movement. I believe it was published on January 25th of 2016. But you provide seven reasons for this new nature movement, and one that you say is the more tech we become, the more nature we need. And I'm sure as someone who also has grown children and you see youth today so absorbed in technology that you too have some concerns. How do we address this as a society? Well, that phrase, the more high-tech we become, the more nature we need, is a kind of mantra in The Nature Principle, which is the second of these three books. And I have a whole section in Vitamin N on what I call the hybrid mind, which is ways to maximize. What we need to do, I think, is maximize both the benefits of the virtual world, and there are some, and the benefits of the natural world, of the nature experience. And if we do that, the kids will be okay. In schools, for instance, what I call for is a, is a kind of balance. It doesn't need to be 50-50, but some kind of balance, and I would err on the side of more nature, more reality in kids' lives. But uh, kind of, a, I think we need a new education mantra, which is for every dollar we spend on the virtual world, we need to spend at least another dollar on the natural world, on the real world, on reality. Uh, in terms of a learning environment. If we do that, the kids will be okay. The problem is, and I'm not anti-tech, I want to make that clear, but the problem is that the people who are in charge of the future of schools in America have a horse in the race. They have product to move. And believe me, I, you know, I'm kind of an agnostic on Common Core. Mm. Uh, I'm more concerned in, in how that will be executed. And the people who are in charge of the future of schools know exactly what kind of school they want. They want a school that is flooded with computers, flooded increasingly with even video games used as teaching tools, and they go even a step further than that. They say the good news is testing as we know it will fade away. What they have in mind is what they call, without embarrassment, stealth monitoring, which means that every keystroke that a kid makes during the school day, but in fact, even when they go home with their device to do their homework, every keystroke will be monitored. And so you won't need written tests anymore because the machines will be watching these kids all the time. Again, I just this is on my mind because I just got back from New Mexico where I learned that kids are being tested in their reading skills by sending them home or doing it in classrooms with computers, and they have to keep up with the speed of the reading on the screen. They test other things. But I'm thinking, you know, I'm a really slow reader. Yeah. You know? What would that tell them about me? My wife reads 10 books to every one of mine. Yeah. We read for different purposes. We read in different ways. We absorb information differently. And yet they're going to quantify that with a computer? Yeah. And But that's the direction it's going. Now, again, I'm not anti-tech. Technology in our schools has to play a role. There's no doubt about that. The problem isn't the presence of technology in the schools. It's the absence of 
other kinds of experiences increasingly. And where is the lobby for balance? Yeah. There is no economic group that can stand up to the economic force of the technology companies now in education. There's no economic counterpoint to that. The only counterpoint to that will be a social movement. And that, to me, is the new nature movement. That includes connecting kids to nature, also connecting adults to nature. It, it includes a new vision of the future, not just as sustainable as an energy-efficient future, but a nature-rich future with nature-rich schools, nature-rich cities, nature-rich life. That's the only, I think, true counterbalance that can stand up for balance in our in our schools and in our lives. I totally agree with you, and I think that if we can somehow be thinking of full-cost accounting and try to put a value on the time in nature. You know, I, I was coming up to the radio station this afternoon, and I noticed that some of the trees downtown have been marked with a, a dollar value in terms of how much this tree is saving. If we could have something like that, talking about how many dollars we're saving perhaps in medical care costs, mental illness, improved grades and performance in society, then maybe we could boost that movement towards this new nature movement. I agree to an extent. In fact, in Vitamin N, I talk about how every city needs to include the economic benefits of nature, not just the number of fishing licenses sold, right. but you know the prevention of mental illness and all of that in their economic studies. The problem, though, is that you can depend too much on numbers. Yeah. And there are qualities of nature and our experience in the natural world that go far beyond numbers and go actually to our, our spiritual selves. And that cannot be measured uh, in that way. It's why I, I always make my argument, not based only on science, because science has its limitations. I make this uh, argument that we need to connect the next generation to the natural world and ourselves. That's a moral argument. If we had waited for all the data to come in in the civil rights era movement, we'd still be waiting. Some things are right because we know they're right, and we know our kids have every bit as much of a human right to the natural world as we did when we were kids. And, in fact, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature in 2012, and we had something to do with this, with Children Nature Network, actually passed a resolution. These are thousands of conservation nonprofits that band together that, that are part of the IUCN, they passed a resolution supporting what I've been saying for a while, that this should be considered a human right for children, and they passed that. That's how we need to think about it. It's not just a, a thing that, you know, measuring it economically, measuring it scientifically is part of a larger argument, an important part, but the larger argument is a moral argument. Mm. That is a beautiful note to end our conversation on. I want to thank you so much, Mr. Liu, for being my guest. In summary, I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Mr. Richard Liu, co-founder and chairman emeritus of the Children and Nature Network, an organization supporting the international movement to connect children, their families, and their communities to the natural world. He is the author of eight books, including Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, and The Nature Principle. His ninth book, and the heart of our discussion today, is titled Vitamin N, 500 Ways to Enrich Your Family's Health and Happiness. This is a recipe for wellness. I recommend it to new grandparents, teachers, new parents, anyone who cares about the lives of children. 
I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I will be providing links to vitamin N and this terrific website, childrenandnature.org. Mr. Lou, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks, Melinda.